0: Our study today is something you all know I love. it. I just absolutely love it when there's a problem in our understanding of Scripture. What's going on here? Why is it written this way? Now today is just six and a half verses, but there are at least two interpretations of this history that uh, Luke presents. Was Luke unaware... Of the actual timeline of what we're about to read today? Or was he writing for a specific audience and therefore unconcerned with how time was passing? Here's our passage for today. It's Acts 9, 19b-25. And it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now remember that Paul was on his way to Damascus. And he was struck by a blinding light. Jesus appeared to him. uh, said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was led by the hand into Jerusalem. And then, in parallel visions, a man named Ananias was told to go to the house of Judas to a man named Saul who was praying. And Saul was given a Vision of Ananias coming to him. So these competing, anytime you have two visions from God on the same thing, it's considered definitive word from God. So that's where we were. Ananias came, laid hands on uh, Saul. Saul uh, received his sight back, took nourishment. And so that brings us up to date, in case any of you were unfamiliar with our story for some days, this is scripture, He's with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them down before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And verse 26, which were not really... Covering today in our study, but which plays in it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he had attempted to join the disciples. And I read that because it gives us a little bit of a timeline here. And it looks like um, this is a very straightforward narration, right? So, what is the problem here? Well, let's let the Apostle Paul himself outline this. Perceived problem for us. Galatians, which was written by the Apostle Paul, verses, and it's, chap, uh, it's chapter 1, verses 11 through 18. And it says in Paul's voice For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. and who called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor, I did, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And it's so, okay, so good, so far, right? That sort of lines up with uh, what Luke has written here. But it's the next verse, verse 18, that causes a problem because Paul said, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. Hmm. Well, that's a head-scratcher. What Luke wrote sounded like it took place in a matter of days. But instead, you know, it was twelve hundred days. I guess that is after many days, but... uh, Uh, A lot longer than it sounds. So, did Luke not know how long Paul was in Damascus? Uh, Some scholars think that Luke wrote his history from other sources. uh, And it's probably true because he was not there. So he was quoting other sources on this. But later, Luke joined Paul in Paul the Apostle's missionary ministry. Did Paul not set him straight, we don't know because Luke did not go and revise his history that he has written, but more probable is that Luke was hitting major events in Paul's life unconcerned with what the timeline all actually showed. He wasn't writing a chronological history, he was writing a history of things that happened in Paul's life. Scholars, uh, well, remember that Luke wrote Acts and the Gospel of Luke to Theophilus, which means lover of God. Was that a device of his to address it to everyone who was looking after God, or was Theophilus a real person? Now, scholars tend to believe that Theophilus was a real man, a Greek-speaking Gentile convert, it's possible he was just interested in Christianity, uh, but Luke does say uh, he's putting this down in order so that you may have a basis for how you have been taught without quoting it exactly. So, so Luke uh, was, as it says, trying to set down a chronology for him. Luke, And here's what Luke says in his introduction both to the uh, Gospel of Luke and... that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And in Acts 1, 1 through 1-2, he reiterates, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke's objective was to write an orderly account of the beginnings of Christianity. But why not a complete account? Okay? Why not, you know, really, really cover the subject? There's an ongoing biography of Winston Churchill. It is still being written. His son uh, Randall is one of the participants. It's up to eight volumes. But there are 24 companion volumes that go along with it. 10 million words in this biography have been written about Winston Churchill and they haven't gotten to the end of his life okay there's more to come and not only that but of the 32 volumes between the 8 official and the 24 companion out of those 32 they left out huge chunks of his life okay it's impossible to write a biography of the church or of bio is about a man, of course, a history of the church, or a biography of Paul, and include everything indeed. Jesus' best friend on earth, the Apostle John, who shared so much with him, was with him constantly throughout his life, says in John uh, 21, verse 25, he says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. This is at the end of the Gospel of John. He's just recounted Jesus' ministry, and he says, Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. <clears throat> and it sounds like they're attempting to do the same thing with Winston Churchill. Uh, all the libraries in the world won't be able to contain the biographies written about Winston Churchill. The upshot is that whether Luke Knew the history or not, things were going to get left out no matter what. Nothing was going to be completely accurate or inclusive. Now with that as a preamble, let's look at this passage verse by verse. And, and one more big controversy that's coming up here. Verse 19b says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now we saw previously that after regaining his sight, Paul took nourishment and began regaining strength. Now he has been some days with the disciples, undetermined, with the believers in, uh, in Damascus, and um, not one to sit around idle, as we'll see, here on out throughout Acts in the life of Paul. Not one to sit around idle. Verse 20 says, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, one of the... One of the... Uh, Writers of a commentary that everybody reads because I read F.F. F. Bruce first and then I'll read John MacArthur who will quote F.F. F. Bruce and then I'll read uh, Longnecker who will quote F.F. F. Bruce but that's okay. F.F. F. Bruce was writing, wrote his commentaries back a little while ago, in the 60s before some of you were born. You know, what can I say? Recent history to some of us. So anyway, F.F. F. Bruce says that this is the first and only use of the title of Son of God in Acts. Okay, uh, In the Old Testament, Son of God was used throughout the Old Testament in three ways. Uh, one was uh, describing the nation of Israel and that can be found in both Hosea and Exodus. So the Son of God was the nation of Israel. But also, it was used of the... Um, anointed king of Israel. And we find that in Samuel and Psalms. I'm going to assume it's uh, used first of uh, Saul, the other Saul, uh, and then David. So I'm not positive I didn't look it up. But Son of God for the anointed king of Israel is used in the Psalms and in Samuel. And then it's used of God's coming Messiah. In Psalms He says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. But it's used other places also. Even the high priest at Jesus' trial believed that the Messiah was the son of God. Because Caiaphas, when he is questioning Jesus, says, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? but to make sure that we know that it's of God, another one of the Gospels says, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? So as will be his distinguishing trait throughout the rest of his life, Paul goes into the synagogues, plural, because Damascus was a nice city, preaching Jesus as the Son of God. And verse 21 says, And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Now this is obviously a rhetorical question. They know the answer to it. Yeah, this is Saul, all right? Everybody knows who Saul of Tarsus is. The men who brought him into Damascus blind are still among them. So the question was not so much, is this the man who created havoc in Jerusalem as much as it was what happened to him? Verse 21b says, um, they finish their questioning about Saul. And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? And the answer is, not so much anymore. He is not going to be taking anybody bound back to Jerusalem. And now the enemies of God, those who are found opposing God, have met the most formidable opponent they will ever meet in the former Saul of Tarsus, soon to be known as the Apostle Paul. Verse 22 says, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now remember, Saul, student of Gamaliel, thoroughly familiar in the Old Testament, a doctor of the law, which meant that he was also a doctor of the religion of Judaism because they were one and the same thing, master debater, and they're really not going to get the better of him in any kind of a debate since Stephen has left the scene, as it were. Now Saul thought he was strong before, as he was persecuting the church. But those without God have their own weaknesses, weak in their own ways. And those who are strong in the Lord share the same strength. They share the Spirit of God. And that strength is shown as Saul proves and not tries to prove that Jesus is Christ. Verse 23 says, When many days... Had passed. The Jews plotted to kill him. Now, you know, when you hear many days, what comes to mind? A month to sixty days, uh, because here we skip forward for that three-year period. I once read a, I once read an account of a primitive Amazon tribe. They were not real good with numbers. They, when they counted, they went one, two, three. Many okay. Well, we're here at the many. It's not one day. It's not two days. It's not three days. That's many days that we get here to, and many days had passed. The other thing to notice here is Luke relates that the Jews were plotting to kill Saul, but Second Corinthians eleven thirty two through thirty three, which Paul also wrote, has. Paul relating that at Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So we have a little bit more detail Paul is sharing in his letters to the Corinthians about what happened in Damascus. And he says, King Eretus, well, Who is King Aradus? Galatians 1, 14 through 17, once again, a letter Paul has written recounts some of this history. He says, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and my people. We're sort of repeating, maybe he only had one story like I do, you know. Anyway, he says, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go to Jerusalem uh, to those who were apostles before me but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So what was Paul doing in Arabia anyway? When you think of Arabia, are you like me? I think of Saudi Arabia and I think of Yemen down there on the bottom and and Oman on the side. But that was—we're getting to the problem of Ethiopia not being Ethiopia here because Arabia is not where we think Arabia is to the biblical Jews. Arabia was—it um, was another kingdom. It started probably about 20 miles south of Damascus, so it was in Syria. It covered all of Jordan, which is on the east side of all, all of Israel, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and the River Jordan. It also included the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt, and it included the very northern part of what we call Saudi Arabia down to the city of Petra. So here, Saul has gone to Arabia. And when I see this in my mind, once again, I see him sitting in the desert, having Jesus, because he says Jesus instructed him. And he doesn't say, by the way, he does not say that the Holy Spirit instructed him. He says Jesus instructed him in Christianity. And not anybody, not John, not Peter, not any of the apostles, and not any of the disciples who lived with Jesus challenged his saying that Jesus instructed him, which leads me to believe that it was Jesus. And that not only was it Jesus, but that Jesus probably gave him proofs for the apostles of who was instructing him things maybe that only they would know that Paul would not know that's surmising here but nobody challenged him on saying that Jesus personally instructed him and not the Holy Spirit so, so Paul went down it's called the king, kingdom of Nabatea it was not under Roman rule this was one of the rare areas in the Middle East that was not under Roman rule they had their own king and the king of Nabatea Herodis, was the king. He wasn't a figurehead king. Now, it might come as a shock to you, but while Paul was in Arabia for three years, being instructed in Christian doctrine, he was also preaching in all the synagogues of Nabatea, And and he simultaneously managed to really annoy King Eridus, Okay, And that's what the shocking part is. Paul, the model of decorum and, uh, and genteelness and, um, and watching everybody else's feelings, managed to really make the king angry. We don't know what all Paul was doing in Arabia, but we do know that he was preaching Christ in the synagogues there. His ministry there was ultimately unsuccessful. Uh, from other things that are said lately, uh, later in, in Acts and stuff like that, Nabatea did not accept him. King Herod Herodis did not accept him. So, with his, an enemy... Now, the king of uh, Nabatea, to the extent that the king pushed with the Jews of Damascus and probably there was a colony of Nabateans. Remember, might be only 20 miles from uh, the border of Damascus with Nabatea. There was probably a colony of Nabateans there. And so King Eridus, along with the Jews, along with the governor of Damascus, and along with the Nabataeans, plotted to kill Paul. So back up to finishing up our passage in Acts, verses 23 through 25 together read: When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a a basket. Now Damascus, like all Middle Eastern cities of the time, was a walled city. And houses were built right into the wall. I mean, there was no wasting of space in these cities. And the houses ran right up to the wall. And there was a window cut into one of these houses that belonged to one of the disciples. And it does say disciples of Paul. So in this three years, Paul had built up a group of believers. Now, mind you, he was already moving into an area that already had Christian, um, Christians living there. But he also had disciples who were following him. The only way to get in and uh, out of a city back then was through the city gates. And I don't know how many city gates Damascus had. Done. These things, nobody tells me anything, you know. And, but King Herodus knew how many there were. And they were watching these gates day and night to catch, Paul, uh, to catch Paul leaving the city's safety so they could kill him in the countryside. Notice they didn't take him in Damascus. We're not given a reason for that, why he was not taken in Damascus. Peter was taken in... uh, Stephen was taken in uh, Jerusalem and dragged outside of the city in stone. But apparently, Paul had a certain amount of protection while he was in Damascus. So they were waiting for him to get out into the countryside. We do not know how Paul found out about the plot it just says that Paul became aware of the plot to kill him but he did find out now it is assumed that uh, as i said one of paul's disciples in damascus owned a house built on the wall of damascus with a window cut into it and and while the conspirators were watching the gates day and night as it says One dark night, his friends let Paul down through the opening in a basket, uh, foiling the Nabataean king's plot. Now, you might think that there must have either been a large basket or that Saul was a uh, small man. And they think both things are true. Okay, Saul was not a large person uh, by, by history's reckoning. But the basket... Uh, the Greek word here used for basket is the same word used in Mark 8.8 8, where Christ fed the 4,000 out of a basket where, that he filled with fishes and loaves miraculously. The word describes a large woven or net worked uh, bag or basket suitable for hay, straw, or for bales of wool. So this was not a small basket. A kid was not carrying this into the uh, uh, to hear Jesus speak. It was a large. Maybe they were carrying hay in it for the animals that would be there. Who knows? But it describes a very large basket. So in such did Paul escape those who sought to kill him. Now as we close uh, this study of Paul's escape from death, Uh, one commenter made what I thought was a really odd observation. And he said that not all Christians want to be martyrs. Okay, And I I thought, gosh, does any Christian want to be a martyr? You know, uh, did Stephen want to be martyred, or was he just grabbed and dragged out of Jerusalem? without a chance to escape from his murderers? Has any Christian ever willingly been martyred? And if you answer Jesus, Jesus didn't die a martyr's death. Jesus died as a ransom for many. It was the plan of God that Jesus would die. So he was not martyred um, in that sense, but he fulfilled his mission. So this morning, I reread that statement with my reading glasses on, and what I thought said that not all Christians want to be martyred actually said not all Christians wait to be martyred. Speaking of Paul, Paul got out of town. That makes much more sense to me, okay? It is not a Christian's duty to die for Christ. Instead, it is his duty to live for Christ. To fully live for Jesus means sometimes one does die for Jesus, okay? But it, but it is not your duty to seek out ways to die for Christ. That is not the point. You know, one of my favorite missionary anecdotes is the, the five who were ministering down in the Amazon. And they had a rifle with them. And when the natives rose up against them, they did nothing. They did not fire even a warning shot. And they were all speared to death. They all died for Christ, okay? Though they were living for Christ. And those five deaths, you might think, were for nothing. And yet, the entire tribe became Christians. And all of their family and all through the last 70 years now, that is a Christian tribe because of five men witnessing to them who did not fight back, but instead died for Jesus' kingdom. It doesn't happen with everybody, but when it does happen, it happens. So anyway, it is not... It is not incumbent on us to wait to be martyred. When Even Jesus, he told his disciples, he said, when the armies encircle Jerusalem, go, get out of Jerusalem. And the amazing thing is, the Christians did leave and walked through the Roman lines, untouched. Romans didn't stop them. They got out of there and walked. Anyway, in this increasingly hostile world to the Christian message nowadays, martyrdom common in ancient times is making a comeback. Uh, In Islamic countries, as you know, in the Middle East and Africa, the killing of Christians is commonplace. Uh, It's illegal to be a Christian in some of the uh, areas controlled by Islam. Will it come to America someday? Well, Will one day our commitment to the Lord come with a higher price than it does today? And I'm afraid probably so because we see the rights of Christians being trampled on, the rights of free speech being um, not just watered down but removed. Um, We may need to flee someday just as Paul did. And keep in mind, 20 years later, after this incident of Paul leaving Damascus, Paul makes one final trip to Rome. He had wished to travel as a missionary to to Gaul, which was parts of France and parts of Spain, so he wanted to go to France, Spain. There was talk of England at some point, and he never made it there. Because when he did leave Rome... It wasn't for France, and it wasn't for Spain. It was for somewhere incomparably better, the presence of the Lord. So he did face his martyrdom. He did die for the Lord. Just not then. To be macabre, we're all going to die someday. And be with the Lord, and uh, die in the faith, and you will die with the Lord let's close in prayer